It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. And now, this is the Neighborhood Podcast with New Age Insider's Chief of Staff, D.C. Matthews. Welcome to the Neighborhood Podcast. My name is D.C. Matthews, and I am the Chief of Staff of the New Age Insiders, the premier place for wrestling fans to connect, discuss, and to be heard. Normally, I would be joined today by the outlaw, the unendorsed, the uncertified, the unhere Doc Manson, at Doc Manson, but this is going to be, at least for now, a solo show. So, fun story, I started this podcast over the summer when I had quite a bit of free time. Turns out, Doc Manson had a bunch of free time as well, so it made sense for us to get together and, as we put it, melt faces and casting pods since 2015. But now, Doc Manson has a job, I have returned to my job, and so time is a little away from us right now. So, Doc Manson is not here this week. It's entirely possible that we will be doing a co-podcast at some point during the week, maybe even later today, Sun. But for now, you're just going to have to deal with me, DC Matthews. My apologies to those Doc Mansonites out there who were craving his dulcet tones. We'll be back before you know it. I am the Chief of Staff of the New Age Insiders. And in case you were in the Brooklyn area last Sunday and you saw or heard a group of people in matching t-shirts crying and sobbing and shaking their fists at the sun, the New Age Insiders are Jason, I can tweet while driving Maltov, at New Age Insiders, Liam, I rage against the darkness striker, at Liam NAI, and Bill, my cell phone bill, will be about $1,000 because I streamed SummerSlam from Brooklyn to Boston, Neville, at Bill Neville, NAI. We have a website, and I do hope you go to it, where you can catch up with the news of the day from ace reporter Brandon McIntyre, at Brandon Mac NAI, and you can also see columns from myself and the NAI team, Shannon, at Rebel Dentist NAI, Magnum, at Men- Magnum NAI, and the Queen Heal Herself. Lee Morgan. We'll be talking about Fan Friday just a little bit. Not the most successful Fan Friday we've ever had at the New Age Insiders, but in this case, quality trumped quantity. And both, actually all three of the columns that we saw, one from a member of our team, but we'll get to that later. The three columns that I'll be talking about are all must-read if you are a fan of wrestling writing, intelligent wrestling writing at that. It's been a while since I've been talking to you on my own, so my apologies if I tend to just take a whole bunch of tangents. Though if you're a fan of the New Age Insiders and NAI Pod, that will not be new. All right, I haven't talked to you since Sunday the day, so we have not spoken since SummerSlam. I did a little bit of writing, we've been tweeting about it, but I have not spoken to you orally, A-U-R-A-L-L-Y, orally, since SummerSlam. And if you've been on the New Age Insiders website, newageinsiders.com, 
you've been following my SummerSlam taught me, hashtag SummerSlam taught me, in which I watched SummerSlam without Twitter. I put the computer away, just a notebook, a pen, and these wits. And we went ahead and I watched SummerSlam, actually watched it, not distracted by technology, and came up with some lessons that SummerSlam taught me. I've done part one and part two in written form, ending just after the Roman Reigns and Dean Ambrose win. And right now, I'd like to finish it on the Neighborhood Podcast. So, in case you're curious, this is about two-thirds of the way through. We're going to finish the last four matches of SummerSlam 2015. Roman Reigns and Dean Ambrose have just won their match at SummerSlam. Let's learn what SummerSlam taught me. SummerSlam taught me that WWE must have an archive of sad piano music just in a drawer somewhere, or in a file somewhere. You don't put music in a drawer. We're all in the cloud now. I can remember when Shawn Michaels had some sort of injury, and he had some angle where he retired, and they played some song. I think it was called Tell Me a Lie, because Shawn Michaels had lost his smile. And then we had the slow, brooding piano music that started the Cena-Rollins New York promo. So they just must, Jim Johnson must every day have to write some sort of new sad song on his piano. SummerSlam taught me that breaking John Cena's nose might be more important for Seth Rollins' future and his career than winning the title at WrestleMania, especially since the curb stop has been banned. We're never going to see how Seth Rollins won his first title, but we're going to watch him knee John Cena's nose off about 57 billion times. SummerSlam taught me that a confident, dare I say cocky John Cena, is an entertaining John Cena, though to be fair, I've known that for quite a while. SummerSlam taught me that Seth Rollins should wear white all the time, and not just so Jason Maltov can share more thoughts about the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. SummerSlam taught me that Seth Rollins will be, at some point very soon, the most over-babyface WWE has seen in a very long time. And if you base it just on his reaction from the Brooklyn crowd at SummerSlam, he might be there already. SummerSlam taught me that the announcers were very smart. JBL, a lot of credit here, because right away he mentioned how John Cena was covering up trying to protect his nose. This is how announcers help to build the story. They fill you in on things that you might not even notice yourself. We've talked about this in the columns I've written. We're going to talk about this more as SummerSlam rolls on. That's the announcer's job. Speaking of JBL, SummerSlam taught me that John Bradshaw Layfield has a really annoying way of saying the words nature boy. SummerSlam taught me the difference between Seth Rollins and John Cena in a single minute of action. Seth Rollins dives out of the ring once, he dives out of the ring twice, and then he flips over the ropes. Never seen him do anything like that before. John Cena comes back into the ring, and what does he do? Shoulder block shoulder block, go for his, whatever you call it, blue thunder bomb. SummerSlam taught me that WWE, or whoever put that match together, knew exactly what they were doing by having that sequence happen in that order. If you were wondering whether or not we were seeing the future versus the past, 
you now know based on that 60 seconds of action. SummerSlam taught me that the springboard stunner is terrible. Earlier on in 2015, I gave Stone Cold Steve Austin a lot of grief for griping about this move. I railed against him a little bit. Well, I probably didn't rail, but I chastised him a bit. And I'm sure he was very upset since he obviously reads all of my tweets. But in this case, that's justified. That move is just awful, and John Cena should stop doing it. SummerSlam taught me that WWE edited that stunner post-match to make it look at least somewhat decent. I noticed that again at the end with the Brock Lesnar thing, but I didn't realize that WWE is that fussy that they go back and edit things. I know they edit SmackDown between the taping time and when it shows on Thursday, but I didn't know that they edited pay-per-views. Good information to know. SummerSlam taught me that Seth Rollins is a video game character one of those creator wrestlers come to life. Because you know, if you've played wrestling video games, you create yourself or you create whichever character. I create Christian Hardcore. Those long-term fans know who that is. And you give him or her all of the greatest moves. They've got all the power moves, all the aerial moves. And it's a wrestler that you never think would actually be possible. Seth Rollins is that guy. And how do I know this? Because SummerSlam taught me that Seth Rollins might have the best frog splash I've ever seen. Take the height that RVD got in his prime. Add the flawless execution that Eddie Guerrero got in his prime, put it together, and that's what Seth Rollins showed us at SummerSlam. My question is, why isn't that his finisher? The pedigree stinks and we shouldn't see it. Why isn't he using a frog splash? Are heels allowed to use aerial moves? Maybe we should think about that later. SummerSlam taught me, again, that WWE can do excellent storytelling when it wants to. The figure four moment was great because for a second, you actually thought John Cena was going to win title 16 with Ric Flair's move. SummerSlam taught me that while wrestlers often make great actors, The Rock, John Cena didn't do bad in Trainwreck, despite me seeing far more of him than I ever wanted to. Uh, Austin, you can name it. The reverse is not always true. In fact, it's rarely true. John Stewart, great talker, great comedian, terrible physical storyteller, as you saw with him in the chair. SummerSlam taught me that Naomi's push, whatever it was earlier in 2015, ended the minute she was teamed with Sasha Banks. Sasha Banks is about 508 steps above Naomi, push-wise, and that's not going away. SummerSlam taught me that Charlotte does not belong at all in Team PVC Pipe. Team PCB, but I call it Team PVC Pipe. I hadn't really seen it until now, because I haven't really been watching and it's, it's, she is just completely out of place. Paige and Becky Lynch make sense. They've, they've both got the British thing going on or the UK thing going on. They both dress somewhat dark slash steampunky. And then you've got Charlotte who's wearing white. Blonde wearing white with two girls in black. Doesn't work. If they were to do this again, I think you would need to pair up Paige, Becky Lynch. And really the only person who fits in is the, this new woman, Dominati. 
Natalia with her, I don't know what she's wearing, but it looks kind of scary outfits. That would have been an okay team. And then Charlotte and Sasha should have reformed their alliance, and you put Tamina there as the muscle. Get rid of Naomi because she doesn't have a push anyways. Those teams would have made sense. Keep the Bellas as they are. I still say Bailey Bella was going to happen, but that's would have been my teams. SummerSlam taught me that try as I might, I cannot get into women's wrestling. Although I will say, WWE has announced that on Monday we're going to have a beat the clock challenge. Notice how I emphasize that word carefully. Beat the clock challenge with Team PCB to see who gets to challenge Nikki at Night of Champions. I actually like that. That makes a lot of sense to me storytelling-wise. I'll be interested to see how that works out. SummerSlam taught me that when you're not into a match, it is really easy to get distracted and stop paying attention. That also helped that yesterday morning we were having this fabulous discussion in the neighborhood on Twitter about the future of WWE Network, whether or not everything Raw or SmackDown would go onto the network, the future of cable television in general. Really great discussion. This is why you want to be a member of the neighborhood for discussions like that. SummerSlam taught me that Cesaro is, in fact, Superman. He does this leaping corkscrew dive that I hadn't seen anyone do since Drago in Lucha Underground. And then he, as he lands, he kind of hops up onto the announce table. Hops. He didn't, like, jump. He didn't crawl. He just hopped up like, you know, like you do, and posed for the crowd. It was amazing. SummerSlam taught me that if this was 1995, and I tweeted about this, Kevin Owens would be booked as Jean-Pierre Lafitte. For those of you who don't remember who Jean-Pierre Lafitte was, he was a pirate. This was before Paul Burchill was a pirate, if you even remember that Paul Burchill was a pirate. He was a Canadian, and he was dressed like a pirate, and he wrestled Bret Hart a couple of times. And then he became a Quebecer with Jacques Rougeau, formerly the Mountie. That would be Kevin Owens. Kevin Owens would be a Quebecer if this was 1995. And Cesaro would be Ludwig Borga. He's foreign, despite the fact that the Swiss are harmless. He's a foreign guy. He would have been booked as the foreign monster like Ludwig Borga. Although, in writing this, I went online and looked up a picture of Ludwig Borga. He and Brock Lesnar could be twins. It's crazy. One of these days, I'm going to do a whole feature on wrestler lookalikes because I keep coming up with them two or three a week. SummerSlam taught me that the future of WWE are these create-a-wrestler types. Kevin Owens, Cesaro, Seth Rollins, Neville. These are all guys who 10 years ago, unless you were watching TNA X Division or Ring of Honor, you didn't know wrestling could be like this. I'll even throw Johnny Mundo in there as well, or Phoenix, or any of the guys, Jay Lethal, ACH Scorpio. Pick a guy from Ring of Honor or Lucha Underground or any of these. This is the future of wrestling. Guys who can do all of these crazy moves you never thought you'd be able to see. Remember back to 1996, if you're old enough, get off my lawn. Remember back to 1996 when the Cruiserweights started. If you had never seen Cruiserweight wrestling before, your mind exploded watching Rey Mysterio, Psychosis, Super Callow, Fragilistic, Juventud Guerrera, all those guys just boggled your mind. I'll even go ahead and say that New Day 
are these creator wrestler types because if you've played these wrestling games they always had some sort of weird funny entrances you know they had the too cool entrance long after too cool was around they had the hardy's entrance but then they also had just ridiculous stuff that you'd never seen anybody do before and you could tell it was just the creators the animators getting silly that's what the new day skipping would have been smackdown shut your mouth that video game or here comes the pain or just bring it take your pick would have had guys skipping to the ring and shaking their booty and we would have thought it's ridiculous now it's awesome SummerSlam taught me that wrestlers are really bad at hiding the fact that they talk during a reverse chin lock you saw this in Owens versus Cesaro. Owens had him in a chin lock. And Cesaro, you know, looks like he's trying to pry Owens' arm around his neck, but he's just covering his mouth. And then Owens, right afterwards, ducks his head behind Cesaro's head, and you can tell he's talking too. Maybe it's the HD video. Maybe it's just the fact that I've been watching wrestling too long. But this is as almost, to me, as bad as Cena calling the matches with a megaphone. SummerSlam taught me that a four-hour wrestling show is probably not great. I've used this line before. It's a line I remember learning in elementary school and I use with my own students now. Too much of anything is no good. Too much wrestling is no good. Two hours of NXT, four hours of SummerSlam, three hours of Raw the next night. That's quite a lot. And the reason I know this is because I got bored during Cesaro and Kevin Owens. I had been watching for a while and I got bored. And there's no reason that that should happen unless you're just oversaturated with wrestling. SummerSlam's taught me that it's really hard to count the number of times Cesaro does a European uppercut during a match. I think it was 17, but I may have lost count. SummerSlam taught me that it's possible to get dizzy watching, just watching, a Cesaro swing. I'm not really proud of that, but I had to close my eyes for a minute. SummerSlam taught me that after this SummerSlam weekend, Kevin Owens should never have anyone, either on camera or in the back, make a comment about his size again. He had an excellent ladder match with Finn Balor on Saturday. He had an excellent match with Cesaro on Sunday. I'm sure we could look it up and see what the time was, how much time he was in the ring. I'm guessing it was probably 35 minutes total. Full effort the entire time. If he can look like that and wrestle as good as he did, no one should care what he looks like. I'm talking to you, Kevin Dunn. SummerSlam taught me, and I feel bad saying this, but SummerSlam taught me that Lillian Garcia's outfit, she looked like Tinkerbell, who had fallen on hard times and had to get a job in Las Vegas. That's what that outfit looked like to me. And every time I saw her, that's what I thought of. So I had to share it with you, the neighborhood. SummerSlam taught me that WWE should have put a camera. They have these new cameras on the turnbuckles, not on the pads, which we'll talk about in a minute, but on the ring post. SummerSlam taught me that on the other side of the ring post, post, excuse me, facing the steps, there should have been another camera. So when Taker came up the steps and he stops there before he turns the lights on, that would have been a perfect place for one of those small little cameras. SummerSlam taught me that Mark Calloway has found the fountain of youth. He looked better than he did at WrestleMania 30, even before the concussion. And maybe that was because he had a stupid mohawk. And he looked better than he did at WrestleMania 31. So I, he probably just put in a great deal of effort getting into the best shape of his 50-year-old life. But he looked great at SummerSlam. 
Speaking of the turnbuckles, SummerSlam taught me that something was up with them. Randy Orton in the opening match, I believe it was, yeah, Orton busts himself open on the turnbuckles. Total accident, it wasn't streaming all over. And then Brock Lesnar had the same thing when Undertaker hit Snake Eyes. Was it intentional? I doubt it. But obviously, some piece of metal or something was sticking out, and both of them got cut. I hope they both have their immunizations up to date. SummerSlam taught me that German suplexes are either all or nothing, and it really depends on the taker. No pun intended, though that was funny. Not the giver. We've seen this before. If you don't get your body up for a German suplex, it looks kind of bad. Those German suplexes looked okay. We'll talk maybe more about why that is in a minute, but I've seen better German suplexes before. SummerSlam taught me that chokeslams are the same way. Brock Lesnar, when he took that chokeslam, looked like he was as high in the air as Rollins was hitting that frog splash. His legs, like, went totally over his head. It was phenomenal. One of the better chokeslams I can ever remember seeing, all thanks to Brock Lesnar. SummerSlam taught me that Mr. Brock Lesnar was very careful with The Undertaker in this match. If you go back to WrestleMania 30 and you watch that match versus this match, Brock Lesnar is essentially holding Taker's hand to make sure he doesn't get hurt. The F5 through the table, Taker hit it with his legs. Not his head, not his neck, not his even torso. He basically hit it with his thighs. His F5s in the ring, he let Taker go horizontally so he could fall using the majority of his body, not vertically towards his head, which is what he did the first couple times. Makes sense. The guy's 50 years old. But Brock Lesnar, I give you credit for being very careful. SummerSlam taught me that that Taker laughing moment might be the scariest thing I've seen that character ever do, and I've been a wrestling fan for almost the entire length of his career. SummerSlam taught me that Paul Heyman needs to have a camera on him at all times. There should be a Heyman cam bottom left-hand corner of the screen where you watch his facial reactions, because you could see him sometimes during the match, but it really should be all the time. All right, last one. Thanks for bearing with me on this. SummerSlam taught me that the announcers can make or break a story. Maybe even more than the wrestlers, more than the referee, any of it. And in order to prove my point, we're going to go back and look at the ending that everyone hated again. So here's, let me set the scene. Brock has Taker in the Kimura Lock. Now, JBL is great right at the beginning, and he mentions that Brock Lesnar's shoulders are on the ground. He's essentially being pinned. That's important information to know. At that point, Taker kind of pops up onto his feet, and as a former amateur wrestler, I know if you pop up on your toes, you're putting all of your weight on whatever you're leaning on, in which case that would be Lesnar. So now he's really actively pinning Brock. Charles Robinson, the referee, Little Nate, goes around to count the shoulders, which is exactly what he was supposed to do. So now he can't see The Undertaker. Taker taps out. The camera doesn't catch it. The camera does, We don't see Taker tapping out. Maybe the cameraman's fault, or maybe the guy's in the truck. We should have seen that first thing. But Heyman sees it. You can see him pointing. And obviously the timekeeper sees it because he rings the bell. But the announcers don't say anything, despite the fact that it's happening right in front of them. I know on that leaked announcer manifesto they were supposed to be looking at the monitor which is what the camera is seeing but come on you should have been able to glance up and see that the camera's pointed at Lesnar and the ref so we don't see Taker tap confusion all over 
Charles Robinson is yelling, and the announcers, understandably so, are not saying anything because Charles Robinson is yelling at the referee, which made no sense. I understand he should be upset about it, but it went on way too long. And so then, by the time people are starting to figure out what's going on, Undertaker's made his comeback. He's hit the low blow. He's locked in Hell's Gate. So the crowd's cheering because that's what they wanted to see. And the announcers are just rambling. They can't really be heard as well over the crowd, and they're not being specific in saying this is what happened. They're like, did you see that? I don't know. What did you see? No communication. And by the time we finally get the official story, I think by the time Cole really says clearly and succinctly, Taker tapped out, the ref didn't see it, the match is already over and it's too little too late. The moment's gone. I don't remember every match that Jim Ross called, but what I do remember is he was rarely, if ever, confused during a wrestling story. And when he was, he was the smartest fan in the building, so he would figure it out really fast. So if he knew that that was going to be the ending, he would act confused for a moment, but then explain it so that the fans understood it so we could follow along with the story. That didn't happen at SummerSlam. So we had two or three minutes of confusion, and by the time we figured it out, we all thought it was dumb. This story, had the announcers called it correctly, was just fine. I actually liked the way it ended. Taker tapped out, but the ref didn't see it, so then Taker came from behind and won. It's the old dirty veteran, the ABA, big evil, whatever you want to call him, version. That's what the old dog in the yard's going to do. He's going to take the opportunity to make sure he gets the win. If the announced team had seen it and had said something right away, I don't think any of us would have been nearly as upset as we were. All right. So that is what SummerSlam taught me. And I've been talking now for 25 minutes. So let's move rapidly along and talk about raw from the next night. I know this is now six days out. So I'm going to break out one of my tried and true columns And it's time for the Chiefs Briefs, Raw Edition. I was super glad to see the Dudley Boys back. Uh, I don't watch Raw live on Monday night. I've never figured out the live stream, and I don't pay for cable. One of the reasons, one of the things we talked about uh, during that great discussion we had in the neighborhood yesterday morning. So this was spoiled for me. I I knew the Dudleys were coming back, but it still was amazing to see. Biggest thing to happen in tag team wrestling in quite a long time. I'll talk about that more later on in the podcast. I did not have the Braun Stowe. Jason and Liam didn't know his name. I think it is Braun, B-R-A-U-N, Stowman. Stroman? Stowman? Stroganoff? Braun, the big guy, the big black sheep. I didn't have that spoiled. I didn't know that was going to happen. That was really cool to see. And... I know a couple of people, Adster1996, one of our great UK fans, was just beside himself that he got to skip NXT. He didn't go through the NXT. He went from development to WWE, and he was very upset about that because Joe didn't do that, because Sami Zayn didn't do that. All I will say is size matters. I've talked many times about how the era of the big man, in quotes, is over. When Big Show retires, when Kane retires, when Taker retires, we're not going to see seven-foot wrestlers anymore. I really don't think we will. So the fact that Braun Strowman is six-foot-eight makes him the biggest guy we're going to see. And he's bigger than Eric Rowan. I think Eric Rowan's six-seven. But he's physically, he's 
wider. He's bulkier than Rowan is. So he is the biggest guy they have, I believe, in their system. And in that case, we've seen it time and time again. Giant Gonzalez, Yokozuna, all of that. If you're huge, if you're a physical presence, you are going to get more of a push than if you weren't. So in that case, I'm fine with him skipping NXT. I don't know how much I agree with Liam's idea about an internship, you know, guys learning on the job. I do think a lot of these guys need NXT to get the development. Um, But I will say that for a guy like Braun Strowman, who is never going to be a technical wizard, he's going to be the big monster who has one or two moves. I didn't have a problem with it. All right. Let's talk about the first Fan Friday piece I want to talk about, and that's from at Jimmy Yadig, our good friend Jimmy. And he talked about Sting. And he talked about how it's, you know, we have there's some mixed emotions about whether or not Sting should be back challenging for the world title in his second WWE match. And there are people who are probably more deserving, but at the same time, Jimmy ties in the story and explains that. You know, this is what happened. This is why he and Rollins have a past. And then he also mentioned, I believe, the fact that a lot of time has passed between Survivor Series 2014 and the night after SummerSlam 2015. All I'll say is this. WrestleMania 3, Pontiac Silverdome, 86, 86. Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. Big, epic match. The next time they wrestle each other is at Survivor Series that year. Now, granted, there were only two pay-per-views that year, WrestleMania and Survivor Series, but still, they fight in a traditional Survivor Series match eight months later. Then they fight at main event in February of 1988, which is when... Oh, so WrestleMania three must have been in 87. So, which is when there's the mixed finish and the title gets held up. Andre beats Hogan and presents the title to Ted DiBiase, and you can't do that, so the title becomes vacant, leading to the tournament at WrestleMania 4. So they wrestle at main event, then they wrestle at WrestleMania 4. The point I'm trying to make is this. A story can take months and months and months to develop, and nobody really minds. The problem is, in today's 24-7 Twitter, in today's WWE Network, in today's four or five wrestling shows a week, it feels longer because we've had nine or ten pay-per-views since then, but it really isn't longer. So it's okay for Sting to have gone away for a few months and then to come back and take issue with Rollins and Triple H. I don't see that being a big problem. Think of yourself as a casual wrestling fan. You don't watch Raw every week. You watch wrestling when it's interesting, or maybe at those big shows. You remember watching Survivor Series on Thanksgiving like I do. So maybe you watch Survivor Series, or you remember WrestleMania. So you always, you know, you try to catch in. Like football. I watch the Super Bowl. I watch maybe two or three other football games all year long. I would be the definition of a casual football fan. So a casual wrestling fan doesn't care that Brock Lesnar and The Undertaker took 16 months off. They're like, oh, Brock and Taker are fighting again. Okay, I'll watch that. Same thing with Sting. Either way, I was glad to see him. I do think the boys on the podcast, NAI Pod, have it right. I think Sting beats Rollins at Night of Champions. Somewhere along the line, maybe it's at WrestleMania, but I don't think so, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Cena beats Sting for Title 16, and then you can have Seth Rollins or Roman Reigns 
beat Cena for the title, which is a bigger deal than beating a 50-year-old man. It's not a bad thing for Rollins. Triple H's first world title run, I doubt you remember most of it. That was probably the one where he was feuding with Cactus Jack, but I'm guessing. I don't remember. He became, all what I do know is he won the Intercontinental title after winning the world title, so obviously it wasn't that big of a deal. Rollins is going to be just fine. He broke Cena's nose. He was, in my book, the MVP of SummerSlam. He's as hot now as he was before. Losing the world title is not going to make a whole bunch of difference, especially if they make him defend the U.S. title as well at Night of Champions. I think somehow you have to have all the championships defended at Night of Champions. WWE can make that in quote-unquote official rule. So he has to defend the U.S. title. Maybe he defends it against Orton. Maybe he defends it against... I doubt it would be Cena, but maybe he defends it against Ambrose to open the show. So Rollins versus Ambrose for the U.S. title to open the show. Rollins wins. And then at the last match, he has to wrestle Sting for the world title. And because he's already wrestled once, he's tired, and Sting happens to have a fluke win and wins the title. That keeps Rollins looking strong. I know that's a favorite phrase in 2015, look strong. Keeps Rollins looking good. Give Sting the title. Quick word on Cena's title wins. 16, to me, doesn't matter. You're tying Ric Flair, which is great. What matters is when you beat Ric Flair. Very few people cared when Barry Bonds tied Hank Aaron's record. It was more important when he broke the record. If I go ahead and have a three-hour podcast, I've tied New Age Insiders in having a really long podcast. What matters is if I go to a four-hour podcast, which is never going to happen, don't get your hopes up. If I go to a four-hour podcast, that's exciting. So I don't think Cena's 16th title win has to happen at WrestleMania. It could happen at Survivor Series. It could happen at the Royal Rumble. 17 has to happen at WrestleMania. There will be a WrestleMania that ends with a big 17 banner, confetti and everything. The entire locker room comes out because now he is officially, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the best WWE superstar of all time. The best wrestler of all time. But it only happens with 17. And that's all I have to say about that. Monday Night Raw didn't feature the number 17 very much, but it did feature the number 7D, 70. 7 in the 10s place, 0 in the 1s place. And the reason why it featured 7D is because Monday was the birthday of WWE Chairman. The only reason we're watching professional wrestling, many people would say, I probably would be one of those people. Vince McMahon turned 70. And I wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk about Vince McMahon at 70. Now, I've been on a conspiracy theory bandwagon because if you look at Vince McMahon over the last two or three years, he doesn't look good. I'm not saying he has a terminal illness, though I haven't ruled it out, but he looks like a man who is 70 years old. And there's a reason I believe that we haven't seen him on TV nearly as much as we did in previous years, unless he's out dancing to Dusty Rhodes theme music or something like that. Um, let me depress slash excite you, depending on your point of view. I think it's reasonable, if not almost a lock, to say that Vince McMahon will not see his 80th birthday. I don't mean to be a downer, and I don't mean to be a horrible person. I am not wishing ill 
on Vince McMahon. Far from it. I love and admire him for everything he's done for professional wrestling. But let's face it, this is a guy who has had, has spent the last 30 years living on the road, living and dying by this company. Maybe he took steroids. Maybe he took a lot of steroids. Maybe he took a huge amount of steroids. But he probably has all sorts of medical problems. And rather than focus on that, though, I want to talk about how WWE moves on from Vince McMahon. Where do they go? And when does it happen? Are we really going to wait for Vince McMahon to pass away before the torch is passed? Or has it happened already? These are the things I've been thinking about lately. Perception, in many ways, is reality. None of us, to the best of my knowledge, are WWE insiders. None of us are employed by the company. And we don't know what's going on behind the closed doors of Titan Tower. We think we do. We assume, we watch a wrestling show and we say, oh, that's a, Triple H must have written that show because we liked it. Oh, Vince McMahon must have written that segment because we didn't like it. That's where we're at right now. If something's good in wrestling, more often than not, somebody on Twitter is going to say it was Triple H's idea, even if it wasn't. If something's bad, they're going to say it was Vince McMahon's idea, even if it wasn't. So, at what point do Triple H and Stephanie McMahon, because they are going to be a team here, at what point do they take over? I don't think it will ever be a hostile takeover. Vince McMahon, at 70 years old, even as fragile as he has looked recently, will beat Triple H with a crowbar before Triple H tries to take over that company. But I, I am interested in your thoughts. Consider this a mini homework assignment, Neighborhood. Where do you think we go from here with Vince McMahon? Does he ever have an on-camera angle? Again, we'll see him on camera. He'll come out and address something. He'll do a pre-taped promo or something. But do we ever see him on a regular basis again? I say no. I'm interested in your thoughts. And how does this transition happen? WWE has been so successful because it is a single-headed beast. Vince McMahon was involved in just about every decision from the 1980s to probably today. And that's why he willed wrestling to survive in many cases. The steroid angle, the Benoit angle, the WCW, the Monday Night Wars. He willed it to survive. Can WWE succeed without Vince McMahon? Do Triple H and Stephanie, do they have that same drive, that same willpower? Is it different now in 2015 than it was in the 80s? I think WWE can't be a single-headed beast anymore. It's just too big. You've got the network. You've got international. You've got the studios that are doing the movies that need the talent. You've got NXT, WWE, live events, touring, whether or not there's going to be a physical Hall of Fame. You can't... One person can't make all of those decisions. Can two people make all of those decisions? Can Stephanie and Triple H do it on their own? Do they need to bring in more people? It's not going to be Shane McMahon as much as we want it to be. Let's just stop that now. Shane McMahon has no part of wrestling ever again. But I'm curious as to how you think this will go. I think Triple H and Stephanie each take, they split it up. They're the two-headed beast 
in the future. Stephanie's got the public relations side. She's got the corporate side. She's probably the one making the Hall of Fame decisions. Triple H is the wrestling side. He's doing great with NXT. If he's involved in WWE, I assume he has some involvement in some of their successful things and some of their failures. He's not perfect. But I think he takes more of the wrestling creative. I think Stephanie takes more of the business side. But there's going to be other people under them. Who will their Kevin Dunn be? Vince McMahon's best friend, supposedly. Kevin Dunn is making decisions. So I'm curious as to your thoughts, and I hope you'll share them with me. So we missed his birthday. What I podcast with Doc Manson, I keep I take a lot of the quote unquote regular things that you usually hear on the neighborhood podcast out. So I missed his birthday. My apologies to Vince and anyone else who had a birthday last week that didn't get mentioned. I'm sure all those wrestlers were very upset that I did not mention them on this podcast. But since I have some time, let's talk about the week in history. Sunday. August 30th. That would be today, in fact. Only one wrestler has a birthday today. That would be Doug Williams, former TNA star, British star. He's 43. But I wanted to share with you the results from a Velocity taping from 10 years ago. And at that taping, back in 2005, Brian Kendrick beat Paul London. Hardcore Holly beat Steve Madison. Doug Basham beat Michael Patrick. And in the main event, Super Crazy beat Nunzio. Monday, August 31st, only two birthdays to speak of. A friend of the New Age Insider, she's done some work at that baseball stadium show they went to in Lowell. She did a intro post for them. Mickey James is 36, and former WWE champion, TNA champion, and the guy with the craziest entrance music I ever heard, Jeff Hardy, uh, I hope you're listening, GQ. I know you're not, but I hope you are, because we used to make fun of this all the time, because he would sing his own entrance music, and it was pretty much, you, you just you got to believe in yourself. You just, you just got to believe. And it was just the most ridiculous thing. Jeff Hardy is 38. Uh, but 17 years ago, we had a Shotgun Saturday Night taping, and I'd like to share the information with that, too. 17 years ago, that would be uh, 98, 1998, Dan Severn, former UFC star, beat J.R. Ryder. Dustin Runnels beat Lance Diamond. And Kayantai, Teo and Funaki, beat Julio Sanchez and current Ring of Honor announcer Steve Carino. That brings us to Tuesday, September 1st, the only day this week with a lot of birthdays. Solomon Crow, one of NXT's not successes, is 28. Sim Snuka, who was either Deuce or Domino, I can't remember. Son of Jimmy Snuka, obviously. He's 44. Tracy Smothers, excellent wrestler. I've been watching these WCW pay-per-views. Excuse me. WCW pay-per-views. And Tracy Smothers was great. He's 53. Formerly, I think he was Freddie Joe Floyd, jobber in WWF. Bam Bam Bigelow, one of my all-time favorites, was born in 1961. And Ted Petty, most famously known as Rocco Rock of Public Enemy, was born in 1953 on September 1st. Wednesday, September 2nd. Uh, if you paid really, really good attention to wrestling in the mid to late 90s, you might remember a guy named Just Joe. Uh, he was more famously known as Joe E. Legend. I believe he was a friend of Edge and Christians, if I remember correctly. He's 46. A former WCW low-card guy. He was part of a tag team with Firebreaker Chip, Todd Champion. He's 55. 
And on September 2nd, Jay Youngblood, one of the famous Youngblood brothers, passed away in 1985. If Magnum is looking for an idea of what to write about this week, not that you would, you've got tons, tell me about the Youngbloods, because I have no idea who they are. But I did want to share, 23 years ago, that would be 1992, for those of you playing at home, we had a wrestling challenge taping, and here's what happened. The Natural Disasters, Earthquake and Typhoon, beat Gus Cantaracus and Nick Sherry. The Mountie, already mentioned once on this podcast, he is handsome, brave, and strong, beat Jay Sledge. Nails and Tony DeVito, who would go on to somewhat stardom in ECW, fought to a draw. The Comet Kid, better known as Conan, beat Dwayne Gill, better known as Gilberg. The Undertaker defeated Glenn Ruth, who would go on to be Thrasher of the Headbangers. And in the main event, the main event, Shawn Michaels beat Jumpin' Joey Mags. Thursday, September 3rd, Brutal Bob Evans of Ring of Honor is 43. And on a main event taping from 2013, we saw Fandango beat Justin Gabriel, R-Truth beat Damian Sandow, and Harper and Rowan beat the Primetime Players. Friday, September 4th, Xavier Woods, the trombone-playing, show-stealing member of New Day, is 29, and former TNA wrestler, WWE women's wrestler, Awesome Kong, who should come back at some point, is 38. And nine years ago, 2006, Sunday night heat taping I'd like to share with you, Shelton Benjamin beat Eugene. Mickey James, who had a birthday earlier this week, beat Tori Wilson. And Kenny and Mikey of the Spirit Squad beat the team of Snitsky and Val Venus. That takes us to Saturday, September 5th. Only birthday to speak of is Crippler Ray Stevens, who was born in 1935. But I have a Superstars taping to share with you from 2011. Mason Ryan beat JTG. And that awesome team I'm sure you remember of Kurt Hawkins and Tyler Rex beat Percy Watson, and Titus O'Neil. So I'm sure you're wondering, why? Why, why, why did I list all of those past events for you that weren't very good? There were summer slams all over this week in wrestling. Why didn't I talk about those? Well, I have two reasons. Number one, I enjoy mid-card jobbers. Well, I have three reasons. Number two, it was a slow birthday week, as you could see or hear. And number three... For years, for years, for years, as we just saw for decades, WWE spends a lot of their TV time on matches that nobody cares about. Now, I understand in 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the squash match, the jobber parade was a part of wrestling. But it's 2015. I get you want to have auditions like Samoa Joe versus Tyson Kidd, which wasn't a squash match by any case. I get when you want to have auditions. I get when you want to have a wrestler working on a gimmick. But it's 2015. What purpose did Doug Basham versus a jobber, or the Mountie versus a jobber, or Shelton Benjamin versus a jobber, sorry Eugene, I love you, but that's what you were, what purpose did that serve, and why do we need that in 2015? Which brings me to my next segment, Fixing the Mid-Card. Two people in the last... 72 hours or so, have written articles on NewAgeInsiders.com that have to do with this topic. One of them is NAI team member. I'm sorry, Jason. I know that he's not an official team member, but he went with you to Providence. He went with you to Brooklyn. He's NAI super fan, 
Adam, at Adam K-N-A-I, I believe is his new Twitter name. Um, he wrote something about the Intercontinental title. And then we had Mile High Laz, I believe is his name. And he wrote an excellent piece about the tag team division. So Laz shared some thoughts and ways to fix the tag division. Adam shared his thoughts on the IC title. And he went into very specific ways to fix that. And you could go and read them both. And I hope that you do because they're excellent. And it brings me to my issue. WWE is not using its resources very well. You have a network which could feasibly have 24 hours a day of original new wrestling programming. Sky's the limit with what you can do with that WWE network. You have a full-fledged developmental territory with a performance center and a TV show on that network, and you're popular enough where you can book Saturday night, Sunday night, and Monday night in the same arena and sell out all three times, or come close to selling out all three times. Why in the world do we still have main event and superstars? What is the point of having two network shows that nobody cares about featuring talents that few people care about with no story at all? What is the reason? You should be, WWE, using every minute you can, every match that they have, should be telling some sort of story. I'm not saying we need incredible stories for the likes of Fandango and Adam Rose, whatever he's turning into, and guys like that. But there should be some story. Stardust and Fandango apparently had a great match on Superstars, but I'm not going to watch it because I don't know why they wrestled or what the story is. Is that progressing either of those two characters? No. Why would we watch? What is the purpose of having those matches besides to give roster spots, give your guys on the roster a chance to actually wrestle? There are five WWE titles. There are three NXT titles, and many of them are not being used properly. And this is just bothering me. If you're a talent like a Curtis Axel, you don't have anything to do in WWE right now. You're not a part of the tag team scene. You're not a part of the intercontinental scene, despite the fact that your dad was arguably the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. What are you still doing in WWE? Why isn't he getting the Tyson Kidd treatment and being sent down to NXT? Tyson Kidd went from no charisma, no... Doc Manson would have called him a black hole of charisma if I had showed him his match from early 2014. He wrestled Cowboy Wesley Blake. I remember it well. No charisma, nothing. To now he's the cat lover before his injury. He was now he's the cat lover, fact quoting one half of the tag team champions. And he doesn't have a great story, but he's got a character and a reason to be on WWE television. That's what NXT did for him. NXT does not only have to be about your Bull Dempsey's, your Baron Corbin's, and your Tyler Breeze's. It can be for a guy like Curtis Axel. And maybe he goes down there, and in the course of getting his gimmick set, which is what Tyson Kidd did, he helps put the other guys over. Young wrestlers need old wrestlers to learn from. And it's not just going to be Rhino and the guys, the agents down at Full Sail. 
Curtis Axel should be there, trying to find his new gimmick, what's going to get him back to the main roster. Bad News Barrett, before he went to make the movie, should have been there. The Cosmic King thing might have worked for a while, but he wasn't doing anything. If he goes down there and you've got Finn Balor versus King Barrett, or Samoa Joe versus King Barrett, or Bull Dempsey versus King Barrett, now there's another reason to watch NXT, and it's exciting. How come Damian Sandow hasn't shown up at Full Sail University and come crawling out in Finn Balor paint? That was his gimmick. He used to mock or dress up like the other wrestlers. He could come down as Damian Finn Sandow and just do awesome things. You don't need these guys to be on your main roster if they're not doing anything on your main roster. Tyler Breeze is ready for WWE. Fandango is ready for a change. Switch him. Give Tyler Breeze a chance to be involved in a good story in the main roster. Give Fandango a chance to find a new character. Use your resources. We can't find time to make the Intercontinental title relevant. And I, I'm i sorry, Big Show, and I'm sorry, Miz, you're not going to make the Intercontinental title relevant. But we can tape a Zack Ryder versus Heath Slater match? No. I say no. I say nay, nay. This can be fixed. And here's how I would fix the IC title and the tag title, both of which need a lot of work. Step one. You create a deep and strong division where anyone can win on any night. That fatal four-way match at SummerSlam may have stolen the show. I think it was my most enjoyable match of the night. But you knew, you just knew that the Matadors were not winning the titles and frankly, neither were the Lucha Dragons. Not with Sin Cara as part of the team. It was either going to be the primetime players defend or New Day was going to win. Those were the only two possible options that were going to happen, which makes you ask, why were the other two teams in there? If they don't stand a legitimate shot of winning the tag team titles, why are they in a tag team title match? That tells me that the title doesn't mean anything. If two guys in masks with a bull for no reason can be a part. Same can be said for the Intercontinental title. I love Miz. I respect the big show. But if those are the only two people that can vie for the Intercontinental title, you have a problem. Back in the old days, they used to have a top 10 rankings in WCW. And I don't necessarily think you need that today for WWE. But something like that couldn't hurt. A series of matches where the winner gets an Intercontinental title shot. So you have people who are fighting to win the Intercontinental title. I've said this before. Dean Ambrose was doing this earlier this year. He had backstage vignettes, interviews, where he was talking about how important the Intercontinental title was and why it mattered. We haven't seen him challenge for the Intercontinental title in months. Now he's stuck with Reigns fighting the Wyatt family. I'm enjoying it, but he was the guy to make the Intercontinental title matter, and they just didn't do it. So, step one, create a deep, strong division where people will legitimately believe that anyone can win. Step two, use your part-time legends or your older guys to help get guys over. We talked about this earlier. The Dudley Boys coming back is the best thing to happen to tag team wrestling since I started watching again last WrestleMania, or a little bit before. Best thing to happen to the tag team division is the Dudley boys coming back. New Day's great. Don't get me wrong. They're my favorite part of WWE. But their entertainment, 
the Dudley boys are going to make tag team wrestling fun again. And the boys on NAI Pod were right, as they always are. They're going to win for a while. They're going to win those titles. And in the end, one or two or three teams will be bigger than they were before because they beat the Dudleys. Why are they not doing this with Chris Jericho? Maybe he doesn't want to. Maybe he's got his own things going on. But Chris Jericho is the record holder for the most intercontinental title reigns. You bring Chris Jericho out tomorrow night on Raw, you have him pick up the mic and talk about how embarrassed he is that he has that honor. Because to a fan today, winning the intercontinental title doesn't mean anything. And he's the one who talks about how this title used to mean something. He says what Jason Maltov's been saying for months. Bret Hart won this and then won the world title. Steve Austin won this and then won the world title. The Rock won this and then won the world title. And who's holding it now? Ryback. Who held it before? Barrett and Ziggler. And maybe it makes him a little bit of a heel, but I think the fans would cheer him. He puts down those guys and says, you are not worthy to hold this title, and I'm going to come back and win my title back to show you why it matters. That makes the Intercontinental title fun and important again. Step two, use your old guys. Step three, and this is taken right from Adam. So go read Adam's column if you want more information. The title needs to be defended frequently. I don't need a Ryback Open Challenge. Dear God, I do not need a Ryback Open Challenge. But the title needs to be defended frequently, and the champ needs to win for a while. All right? In the Attitude Era, when I wrote my column on the Intercontinental title, there was a time in, I think it was 99, where the Intercontinental title changed hands like, I'm not joking, 40 times in a year. I don't want that. What I want, though, is if you're going to go with Ryback, and I don't like him, but if people do, that's fine. Ryback beats Big Show, beats Miz, beats Neville, beats Dolph Ziggler, beats other people. So now he's a fighting champion who's really good. So that way when he loses, oh, that other guy who beat him, whoever it is, Braum Strowman or Luke Harper or whoever it is, he must be really good too if he beat Ryback. John Cena, prime example. That U.S. title meant nothing until John Cena won it, and now it is the definitive second title in WWE. Step four. You tie your story lines in with the titles. Why did Dolph Ziggler and Rusev... Why couldn't the winner of that match, and I know they were feuding for their own reasons, but why couldn't the winner of that match have been granted an Intercontinental title shot the next night on Raw? Why not? Why couldn't Cesaro and Kevin Owens have been doing that? For all that matter, why couldn't Cesaro and Kevin Owens have been for the number one contendership for the world title? I know because Sting was coming in, but still. Then you have Owens win. He's the number one contender. Now he's mad at Sting because Sting's taking his spot. Now you've got an even bigger, deeper storyline with multiple parts. But your storylines can tie into the belts. The belt doesn't have to be its own story. Right now, the only story for Ryback is, I'm the Intercontinental Champion. That wasn't the case before. Austin and The Rock feuded over the Intercontinental title. I think it was the Intercontinental title. But their feud was with each other. The title just happened to be a part of it. You can do that again. My fifth idea, and this is totally pie in the sky. This is a dream scenario that I'm sure will never work, and you'll 
you're welcome to tell me why it wouldn't work. Get rid of main event. Get rid of superstars. Why can't you put on the WWE Network a show devoted to the tag team division? If you're going to have a tag team division that ideally has six, seven, eight teams, they don't have to be solely teaming together all the time, but six, seven, eight teams that regularly team together, why can't you have a show where those matches before Raw are the younger guys? You have the Matadors wrestling Adam Rose and Fandango, who could be a team, or Adam Rose and Brad Maddox. Not that that team's ever going to happen. That was something posted online just to scare people. But you have those matches, and they're the winners of that match advance to another wrestler. They wrestle a better team, and they're trying to get that title shot. You could use that. You could have a show devoted to the Intercontinental title. You could have a show devoted to the Divas title. If the Divas title or the women's title, whatever, whatever they call the belt after Nikki Bella loses it, you could have a title that means something and a show devoted to it. My friend DJ, who's now 18 years old, but he still shouldn't be on my lawn, would lose his mind if every week he could go on WWE Network and there would be an hour-long show devoted solely to women's wrestling. So those are my ideas. Deep division, veteran guys to help get them over, multiple title defenses, storylines that matter, and if we're dreaming big a show devoted to each division. All right, here's my tag team division. Ready? This is what I would build. Dudley's, obviously. New Day's, New Day, obviously. The Wyatts. Bray Wyatt and Luke Harper would be an awesome tag team. Just imagine them fighting the Dudley boys. You get Braum at ringside, or Braun, whatever his name is, the big black sheep guy. He's at ringside. The Dudleys bring back Spike Dudley. He's at ringside. He's the giant killer. That would be fun. The Matadors are a good team with a dumb gimmick, so change the gimmick. I wished Carlito would come back. That's not going to happen, but give them something else to do. They'd be fine. The Usos are going to be back soon. They'd be fine. The Ascension, they weren't a bad team in NXT. They just came to WWE and started running their mouths, and it was over before it started. The Ascension could be fine with a tweaked gimmick. As I said, Adam Rose and Fandango wouldn't be a bad team. Axel and Sandow wouldn't have been a bad team. Enzo and Cass, they're coming up. If you watched NXT, you noticed two things. Well, one thing, really. You noticed that Enzo and Cass and Carmella came out separately and didn't interact. The only reason for that would be if they're not going to be interacting anymore. So you need Carmella to try to get herself over without Enzo and Cass. So that's why she had the mic. And Enzo and Cass are going to WWE. I don't remember what I said. Was it by Halloween? Or that was another prediction? By Thanksgiving. By Survivor Series. Enzo and Cass are in WWE. My hashtag prediction. That would be a good start to a tag team division. One, two, three, four, eight teams. Again, like I said, eight teams. And you don't put them all in the ring at one time. But the Dudleys and New Day fight for a while, and while they're doing that, the Wyatts and the Usos fight for a while, and whoever wins the Wyatt and the Usos then takes on whoever the champs are. Intercontinental title or U.S. title, I know a lot of people want to condense them, unify them at this point. I'm fine with that. Maybe that's where we're going. Maybe Rollins randomly wins the Intercontinental title off of Ryback, and they kind of reset and consolidate the belts. But Ryback, Miz, Neville, Kalisto, 
Get rid of Sin Cara. Kalisto's going to be amazing on his own. Titus O'Neil, Cesaro, Owens, Ambrose, Cody Rhodes, or Stardust, call him what you will. Tyler Breeze would fit in great. Sami Zayn would fit in great here. That you get those eight or ten guys who are wrestling all the time, great matches, that means something. The Intercontinental title is going to be important again in a couple of months because that's all it took for John Cena. So, now that I've been rambling for over an hour and my throat's sore, this is why I need Doc here because he always brings the water. Here's your homework. I already gave you one homework assignment. I'm going to give you two more. Pick your favorite division. Obviously not the world title. Pick the Intercontinental title or the tag titles or the Divas title. Or, if you want to, pick a Cruiserweight title. Or if you want to, pick a hardcore title. I don't care. Pick a division and write on NewAgeInsiders.com about how you would save it. How would you build a cruiserweight division? What would your rules be? Who would be the stars? How would you build the Intercontinental title back to prominence? Would you unify? Who would your champions be? Who would your contenders be? Same with the tag team. Same with the women's. Have some fun with it. Be creative. Let's get some ideas going on how to fix these things. Homework assignment number three. Tweet at Doc Manson and tell him you want him to write for NewAgeInsiders.com. Tell him he should be having a Friday piece each week where he writes about anything he wants. He's got two PhDs, one in improvology, so I guess that's not a technical one. But he's got a PhD. He's a smart guy. He's a good guy. Tell him what you want him to write about on NewAgeInsiders.com. You've been listening to the Neighborhood Podcast. My name is DC Matthews, at DC Matthews NAI, and I've been flying solo this week as Chief of Staff of the New Age Insiders. My partner in crime, Doc Manson, at Doc Manson. We'll be back together sooner than you know it. For all I know, we're going to record a podcast later today. We're looking into getting him set up so that we can record in separate domiciles we can be in separate rooms and still record in which case we might talk every day who knows how that's going to work but doc and i will be back together sooner than you think to record another joint neighborhood podcast thanks for being a part of this solo venture remember your homework assignments remember this week in history remember to promote positivity my friends i didn't say that once during this entire podcast but promote positivity wrestling is a fun fun thing to be a part of being a part of the neighborhood is amazing. Make sure, let's take some time to appreciate that as well. I'm DC Matthews. I'll see you around the neighborhood.